Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. Welcome to the first Sunday in Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany, unlike, you know, it's not one of the major, you know, we think about Lent, maybe Easter, uh, Christmas. Epiphany is one of these seasons that hasn't always been highlighted necessarily in the Christian year, um, but it is really important, actually. Um, and there's lots of really uh, good things for us to tend to in this season of Epiphany. We all know that word, Epiphany, actually means like visitation or appearing or revealing. And it actually began uh, just this last week on Thursday, on January 6th, after the 12 days of Christmas that we celebrated and extends on into the first week of Lent, which comes at the beginning of March this year. Epiphany, when it starts... Uh, it always begins with remembering the visit of the Magi as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the book of Isaiah and the expectation of God returning to his people in and through the Messiah. And here today, always on the first Sunday of Epiphany, uh, the thing that's focused on is the baptism of Jesus. We remember Jesus's baptism. And one of the things as we think about Jesus's baptism that we might be curious about is the fact that Jesus came to John to be baptized. Right? We read this story, it was read for us in the Gospel of Luke, and where John himself confesses his expectation of a coming Messiah, who would be so powerful that John says he himself wasn't even worthy to untie his shoes, and that he would be bringing an entirely different and more important baptism. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, John says. But even beyond that, and for good reason, we tend to associate baptism with being cleansed from sin, right? And since we regard Jesus as sinless, there's a kind of a disconnect when we read about Jesus's decision to be baptized. And still we read in the Gospel of Luke that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. So what's going on there? What's going on in Jesus's baptism? And I want to suggest that the answer is identification. The answer is identification. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of someone who voluntarily opened themselves up to harm or hardship simply because of their commitment to love you. Like, have you ever been in a situation that was difficult for you or um, traumatic or like harm was like potentially coming your way? And then to have someone else who they have no uh, reason necessarily, um, they're not obligated. Like the, that, that kind of harm or hardship isn't necessarily in their own path, but they put themselves in the path of it for the sake of being with you. I'd love to read you this story uh, that I came across uh, in the last couple weeks that I think illustrates this point really well. Um, it's about someone named Father Damien de Wuster, a Belgian Catholic priest. Let me read you this quick story. Born Joseph de Wuster in Belgium in 1840, Father Damien traveled as a member of a missionary order in 1873 to the Hawaiian island of Molokai in order to minister to those suffering from leprosy. Nearly 1,000 lepers had been quarantined at a settlement on Molokai that was surrounded by an impregnable mountain ridge. 
Neglected by the Hawaiian government, the settlement had declined into a lawless, filthy, immoral colony of death. Although aware of the need for ministry in the settlement, the Bishop of Honolulu hesitated to send a missionary into the colony as the missionary would surely contract the contagious disease. Father Damien, however, requested the assignment and the bishop introduced him to the colony as one who will be a father to you and who loves you so much that he does not hesitate to become one of you, to live and to die with you. True to this introduction, Damien did not limit his role to that of a priest, and his arrival marked a turning point for the community. He dressed ulcers, built homes and beds, constructed coffins and dug graves. Under his leadership, basic laws were enforced, shacks became painted houses, working farms were organized, schools were erected, and even a girl's choir was formed. Also true to the bishop's words, however, Damien contracted the disease. In 1884, at the age of 49, Damien died with his people. As a little Jesus, Father Damien was willing to give up his own life for those who suffer. That story, I believe, begins to get at what is at the heart of what's going on in Jesus' baptism. This is from someone else that I was reading on uh, this week, um, and I couldn't put this into better words myself, so I'd like to just read it to you. This common uh, commentator said that Jesus presented himself for baptism as an act of solidarity with a nation and a world of sinners. Jesus simply got in line with everyone who had been broken by the wear and tear of this selfish world and had all but given up on themselves and their God. When the line of the downtrodden and sin-sick people found hopes of new beginnings through a return to God, Jesus joined them. At his baptism, he identified with the damaged and broken who needed God. So Jesus comes to the waters of baptism, not because he needs to repent of anything, but to demonstrate the kind of love that God has for his people. A love that says, I identify with you. I bind myself to you. Our stories are intertwined. That's what's going on in Jesus's baptism. And so that then is also a vital dimension of our own baptism. Though you and I share in baptism as sinners in need of a Savior, our baptism also signifies our incorporation into the body of Christ, which seeks to pattern its life after that of Jesus. And so uh, we will likely not all find ourselves called to serve as missionaries to leper colonies. But we are all indeed invited to ask, Lord, to whom would you send me? Like that's a baptismal question. Whose story, whose fate would you have me share in as an ambassador of your love? That's a question that ought to never go away from our lives as baptized followers of Jesus. Here's a, a crucial thing to keep in mind uh, in the midst of that. It's that asking and answering that question isn't merely a human thought process. It's not meant to be that. It assumes the divine presence and power of the Holy Spirit. This is just something that marks us as Christians. The very next thing that happens in the story of Jesus' baptism, we read, And as he was praying, 
heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And you and I, we make a mistake when we suppose that the way that Jesus lived is somehow out of reach for us because he was God. It's a mistake to think like that. The Bible is unquestionably clear that though he was divine, Jesus was fully human and he surrendered himself to all that it means to live a human existence. But it's also true that part of what it means to embrace our humanity is that we have access to the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, which empowers us to think and act in the ways of Jesus. Like that's the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. So here's a fair question that I would ask myself, and maybe you would ask yourself. If I have access to God, the Holy Spirit, how come my thoughts and actions often seem so distant from those of Jesus? It's a good question. I had a college professor who said something to me once that's always stuck with me and I think really helps here. He said, when we're baptized into the faith, we get all of God, but God doesn't necessarily get all of us. We're baptized into the faith. We get all of God. He doesn't withhold anything, but God doesn't necessarily get all of us in that moment. Do you see the insight of that statement? Whether we're baptized uh, as infants by parents who covenant to raise us in the faith and in a community of disciples, or whether we come to the point of baptism later, in that act, by God's grace, we are offered the fullness of God's loving presence. Like that's what God promises to do for us, is to make himself wholly available to us in that time, through that sacrament. But there remains a life for us to live that's an unfolding process of recognizing that there's all these parts of our lives that we have to learn how to submit to Jesus's lordship. So just think about this maybe from like the time of high school on. What are we talking about? We're talking about, and there's so many other things that could be mentioned here, but we're talking about things like how we form friendships. Like who are the people that we're going to spend our time with and invest ourselves in? Whether or not we're going to go to college. What kind of career decisions we might make. And that's not usually, especially these days, not like a one-time decision, but like there's all kinds of, you know, uh, changes and turns and all that kind of stuff. Whether we want to embrace the vocation of singleness or that of marriage. Where we'll live. How we'll manage our finances. How we're going to handle the inevitable conflicts of life. If we have children, how we'll raise our children and how that changes over the course of time. If and when we'll retire and how we'll invest the last quarter of our lives. And like I said, there's just so many other things that are facets of our lives. And the reality is that just because uh, we may have been baptized at some point doesn't mean that those areas of our life have been baptized. The Christian life is one of constantly learning how our baptism overflows into all of those other areas of our lives. Or let me actually put it this way, and pretty pretty starkly. There is a lie that pervades modern Christianity that baptism just has to do with our souls. 
That is false. As Jesus' own baptism makes abundantly clear, his baptism had to do with his vocation and his life, and it has the same to do for us. Our baptism is meant to infiltrate every single part of our lives. Baptism is a gateway into a qualitatively different kind of life, one that's marked by the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit in all that we say and do. The last thing for us to see in Luke's story of Jesus' baptism is this. We read, And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's this powerful affirmation, this calling from God that will sustain Jesus through a time, his time of temptations in the desert and then the joys and trials of his faithful ministry. John Leith was a Presbyterian professor and theologian, and he liked to say that every human life is rooted in the will and intention of God. In baptism, the child's name is called because our faith is that God thought of this child before the child was. That God gave to this child an identity, an individuality, a name, and a dignity that no one should ever dare abuse. Human existence has its origin not in the accidents of history and biology, but in the will and intention of the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. This is really important for us to get. Jesus was not loved by the Father because he was baptized. And you and I are not loved by God because of anything that you have or haven't done. You're just loved. And as with Jesus, you and I, we are eternally beloved. There's nothing accidental or incidental about you or who you are. You are intended and seen and named and embraced by a greater love than you could ever possibly in the words that God the Father speaks over God the Son, I love you, I'm pleased with you, are words that apply to all of us and that we need to hear. They're grace-filled, life-giving words that have the power to change people forever. They did so for Jesus and they'll do the same for our children and our neighbors and our spouses and family members and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine, if you would, what might happen in the life of our churches and through them the life of our communities if we saw it as our mission to be constantly reminding one another of just this reality, that we are loved by God and that he takes pleasure in us. Let me wrap up uh, by letting you in on a secret <clears throat> Uh, okay, it's not really a secret uh, so much as a practice that I've kind of kept to myself because of just how precious and formative it's become for me. So I just feel like letting you in on something that's uh, intensely personal. About five years ago, I began reminding myself of my baptism uh, twice a day. 
each morning when I wake up and wander into the restroom, I turn on the faucet and I gather water into my hands. And three times I scoop the water over my head and face, reciting to myself, I'm baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And just in that moment, I commit my day to the Lord and I acknowledge my desire to be aware of his presence with me and whatever might come throughout the day. And then in the evening, just before I go to bed, I do exactly the same thing. Splash water over my head and face three times and I invite the peace of the Lord to wash over me as I release the day to him, whatever it might have brought. I release it to him in the Lord's care. And that little practice helps me to see each day as kind of a rehearsal of my baptism. It's kind of like a mini epiphany. Uh, a mini, a celebration of epiphany for me twice a day in the morning and the evening. So in the evening is when I think about it starting. In the evening, I remember that I have died to myself. And in the morning, I remember that in Christ, I have been raised to new life. To join my life and story to others who may be far from the Lord, to receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and most of all, to remember that I am loved by God, irrespective of anything else. So friends, as we move into this season of Epiphany together, which again stretches from now until we begin Lent at the beginning of March, may Jesus' baptism remind us of our own, and may we be open to all that the Lord wants to show us in the weeks ahead. Amen.